I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Good morning. It's just a, a privilege uh, to see all of you uh, today as we uh, kick off a new uh, sermon series. We're going to be uh, looking specifically in the book of Psalms. And so if you uh, want to go ahead and uh, make your way over towards that book, and I'll give you some further instructions a little bit later. Um, but by way of introduction, I just want to talk a little bit about, about this book. And so we're not going to make it through all 150 chapters this morning. Um, we're just going to shoot for half. No, um, so if you, if you spend some time in the Word of God, know, know the book of Psalms, just uh, as far as genre is concerned, we would, we would say it's poetry. And so it is this collection of poems that the people of Israel uh, compiled over time uh, from various authors. Um, and also it, it formed the, the backbone of some hymns that uh, the Israelite people um, sang. And so it's this really unique collection that it's not necessarily just uh, history, you know, uh, like what you would get in like maybe like First and Second Chronicles. And it's not necessarily uh, a prophetic text, although there is prophecy pointing towards Jesus within it. But just genre-wise, it is poetry, it is uh, music, and it is um, specific that God has given to us. And it's an important book of the Bible, like all of the books of the Bible, but it does some specific things for us. And so one of uh, just the uniquenesses of the book of Psalms is that it really resonates and hits us at an emotional level. So I'd say there's other books of the Bible that are a bit more heady, they're a bit more informative, um, but uh, Psalms really speaks to the heart. And that doesn't mean it is any less true or any less informative, but it does engage us in a different level, like only poetry, like only music, like only prayer can. It engages us on a deep felt heart and emotional level. And so even if you're in this room this morning and you just would not count yourself as like a poetry person, or maybe not even, I know some people just by nature, like music just doesn't hit at a deep level. And I don't understand you, but God knows you and we'll leave that to him. Because there is just uh, moments in my life when that song just hits at the right time for the right reason. And um, it just uh, speaks to you in a way that nothing else can, thanks to Adele. Um, and so uh, this morning, we're going to look in the Psalms. So one of the things I want to point out to you that, say, maybe you're not one of those people that emotional or flowery or imagery language really speaks to you. I, I would hope we can all just recognize that Poetry and music has played a role in all of our lives on two different levels, both to engage the heart, but also to inform the mind. And so most of us, uh, the first things we learned in life, the first body of information that we were given as children was through music. So right now, my house is going through the ABCs. All of us probably began our journey with the English language through song. Because rhythm and rhyme helps us remember, and it engages the heart and instructs the mind. And music is an important part of how all of us learn. And so I know some of you in here, like, we know that it's a, just in general a good thing to, like, memorize the Bible. And some of you might say, like, I struggle with that. You know, I have a hard time committing things to memory. But if I was to say, just a small town girl living in a lonely world, you would say... Exactly. 
Because rhythm and rhyme helps us remember. And music and poetry has this way of sinking into our lives and engaging our heart and informing our mind. And I think that is a God-designed element of how different genres and different ways of expression are supposed to be utilized in our relationship with him. And so that's one of the wonderful things about the book of Psalms. It is this incredibly rich um, body of poetry, of prayers of God's people that through the centuries, uh, both in the Old Testament, the people of God and the New Testament church of God, we have utilized and gone to and drawn from that well over and over again to bring words to the feelings that we have inside and to give voice to things that sometimes are hard to articulate. We have utilized this incredible collection of what God has given us. And so um, as far as the book goes. It is an interesting book structurally. And if you don't know this, the book of Psalms, the way it is laid out, it's not chronological. And so at some point in the history of the nation of Israel, as the Old Testament was being compiled and put into scrolls, there was this organization given to the book of Psalms. And so, like I said, there's multiple authors. Some we do know, some we don't know. So King David authored a lot of the Psalms. Uh, King Solomon offered some Psalms. But then we have some other Psalms that are listed from Asaph in the sons of Korah and different people, and some that we don't know the authorship of. But we do know at some point there was this organization and structure given to the book that as you read through the different Psalms, it's supposed to be helping draw us deeper and deeper into relationship with God. And so how modern scholars have kind of broken it up, there is these, what we would call the different books of the Psalms, the different collections of Psalms. And so as you get near the end of the book, we have the longest chapter of the Bible in Psalm 119, which is this incredible Psalm. And then we have this collection of Psalms that we're going to be focusing on over the next five weeks, and it's called the Psalms of Ascent. And so they start in Psalm 120, and they go through Psalm 134. So there's these 15 psalms. And so what we know about these is that they were utilized by the people of God as they were traveling to Jerusalem multiple times a year for the feasts and the festivals that would take place at the temple. And so they're called the Psalms of Ascent because it is literally uh, these songs that would draw the people of God, that they would sing together these hymns they had communally as they were going up to Jerusalem. And so even if you were outside of Jerusalem traveling to it, or maybe you were a resident of Jerusalem, there is also this aspect of the temple being on a high spot in the city. So even if you already resided within Jerusalem, there was still this, this act in this process of going up to meet with God. And so that's why we have termed it the Psalms of Ascent. It is this traveling upwards to meet with God. And I love that that conveys an image in and of itself is that God is not down and low beneath us. But for us to join him, it takes us raising our eyes off of maybe the the situations and the circumstances that surround us. And we are going to uh, set our eyes on something higher and greater and truer as we rise to meet our God. And so that's what the Psalms of Ascent do for us. And so some of the unique things you can kind of take out for this, and you know, like I said, you know, I, I want to relate it to music because I think it's one of the things that hits home for us, is that as the people of God, the Israelites, were spread throughout that region, there were probably families and individuals that it was only a couple of times per year where they actually got to go and do their worship at the temple there in Jerusalem. 
And the city of Jerusalem geographically is a raised up city. So it didn't matter which direction you were traveling from. As you headed towards Jerusalem, you would be traveling up. And so what we know is that these collections of Psalms, they were the hymns that people would sing as they were preparing to go to the temple. So it was kind of the pump up song before they actually got there for the feast and the festivals. So I uh, went to high school in uh, Belton, Texas. If anybody's driven through that, like on the I-35 corridor. And our high school mascot was the tiger. So it did not matter what event was going to be taking place at our high school, sporting events, pep rallies, debate tournaments, you name it. At some point during that day, whenever there was an event, the song Eye of the Tiger would play. And to this day, if I hear that song, there's this level of aggression that will start to rise in me. Because for four years of my life, every single Friday night, I heard that before they sent us out onto the football field. And so even though I really don't like that song, there's something it triggers in me that means like start to prepare to hit someone else. And that's not necessarily a good thing, but I do think it is this reminder that as these people were heading to the temple, they had these songs that had been a part of their community, their upbringing, their faith. They began to instruct their minds and remind their hearts what it meant to meet with a holy God. And so as we journey these next five weeks through some of these different Psalms of Ascent, our encouragement to you, and my prayer as one of your pastors, is that we would um, take seriously what it means to meet with God and to join together in worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's what we're going to be doing over these next couple of weeks. And I do think that's just such an important aspect. And I know anytime we hear the word worship, it probably conjures just different images to our minds, especially if you have a history in church. You know, so often I know I reduce it to the singing of songs, and that's an incredible aspect of our worship that God has given us. And But what, what I would really think it means to have worship in your heart, it's really a placement of value. It's like whatever you are valuing the most, that is what your worship is. And so there's going to be good things in our life that we should value. You know, family is a good thing. Having a good job is a a good thing. Having a name that people respect is a good thing. But I think what this is going to uh, challenge and put in front of us is to ask ourselves the question, like, what are we valuing most? Is God at, that to- at the top of that mountain that we're traveling up, or have we replaced him with something lesser? And so let us just remind ourselves today that we want to draw our eyes up from lesser things to what is best to our heavenly Father. I love that it's not even just in these Psalms, but uh, two different prophets, both Isaiah and Micah, make a similar statement that says, come, let us go up to the, um, to the mountain of the Lord. Let's just meet God on the mountain. And it says, for he is the highest mountain. And that is so true, that there are lots of good things in this life, but there's only one thing that is ultimate, and it is our creator. And so let us draw our eyes up and evaluate in our own lives if there are things that might be stealing our worship away and might there there be lesser things that we are emphasizing. And may God just correct us this morning and and, uh, remind us uh, how he is sufficient. And so let us uh, ascend to him and worship him in spirit and in truth. This morning, the text we're going to be going through is Psalm 122. 
And let me just lay out there before we read the text. I've kind of got two goals for us this morning. One, you know, I'd like to just uh, read the word of God and discuss uh, what it would have meant to the people at the time. And so this um, um, just um, chronologically predates Jesus. And so it would have hit a little bit different for those people that were still uh, a mesh in the Old Testament Judaism. And so we want to talk about what it means to the people it was written for and at what time. And then what I'd like to do on the back end is just draw some parallels for us today as the people of Jesus Christ, as his church. How can we take this and think about what it means in our life? And so Psalm 122 says this. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. And so if you have a little heading in your Bible, it might tell you that this is a Psalm of David. And so one of the interesting aspects of how the book of Psalms is structured is that, so we know with David, as he became king of Israel, he actually established this city, Jerusalem. He uh, took it over with the Israelite army and established it as the capital. And then part of David's life and his role was the preparation of the people of God to actually build the temple that ended up in Jerusalem. And so it wasn't built in until his son Solomon uh, completed that work and built the temple there in Jerusalem. But like I said, the book of Psalms was compiled over time for these people. And so uh, David would have been uh, looking expectantly to where God's house was complete and there was this permanent spot for worship. But the people reading and singing this psalm as they traveled to Jerusalem probably would have had the temple to look forward to when they were there. And so I like that it has this interesting um, thing going on in verse 1 and 2. Because he says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. But then he also says his feet are already standing in Jerusalem. And so one of the things as uh, believers who we have a a faith in both um, in aspects of what we can see, but also in a hope in something that is coming. And so we have to live in this tension of some realities are are both um, present, but also future at the same time. And so we get this dichotomy here with David that he is writing this psalm looking forward to the day that there is this permanent house of the Lord built in Jerusalem. And there are other people who are reading and singing this psalm, knowing that that temple is built. And in the same way, uh, even today, we as believers in Jesus Christ, we have this reality that we get to be in the presence of God and meet together and celebrate and recognize that, but we're also looking forward to the day where there is no separation between us and our creator. We have this uh, current reality also looking to a future reality, and Israel would have recognized those things because over their history, God continued to reveal himself in different ways, and there were moments when uh, the temple was built and flourishing, and the center of their worship was all together at Jerusalem, but then also there were times when uh, God raised up other empires that demolished uh, Israel so that they would continue 
continue to seek God because their hearts were more important than them having a geopolitical state that had influence at the time. So they had to live in this tension of what uh, God was both doing and what God was going to do. And so that's this interesting aspect of what's going on in these first two verses. But I love how uh, central uh, for David this idea of Jerusalem was. It was this central geographic place uh, for uh, the people of God, the Israelites, to gather together. That's where they came together, and it says, as was decreed by the Lord. And so there was this special significance God gave that city for a season because that's where his presence was going to dwell uh, with the Ark of the Covenant, with the people. And so there was these festivals that were decreed. So even if maybe you did not live in Jerusalem, There were these appointed times and places where you were supposed to get with your family and you were supposed to travel to go be in the presence of God. And so as as we know, under Solomon, they actually built this temple in Jerusalem. And there's all these um, incredible um, imagery and stuff that was put into the temple that you can read about in other parts of the Bible. And as they worked gold and wood and made this incredible, beautiful house, there was all these uh, garden images that were placed within the temple specifically. And, you know, the idea of the menorah is supposed to look like a tree. And so what it's supposed to remind the people of God is that there was a reality with Adam and Eve in the garden where God created us to be in his presence and dwell with him face to face. And so as the people of God traveled back to Jerusalem, it was supposed to remind their hearts that their current reality wasn't going to be their future reality, that there was a future where they were supposed to be completely in the presence of God unencumbered by sin, unencumbered by the things of this world, that that's supposed to remind our hearts that to ascend to God is what our natural state is supposed to be like, and it has just been marred by sin. And so it's supposed to call their minds back to the beginning. And what do they do when they get there? I love what it says at the end of verse 4, as was decreed to give thanks to the name of the Lord. We do that so often through song. And so even um, back then, the people of God gathered together and they gave thanks to the name of the Lord. They praised what was of highest value. They worshiped. And there was all these different ways they worshiped through the sacrifices. But that's what God decreed, that all of the tribes were supposed to come together and give thanks to the name of the Lord. And I love that David just describes this joy that was associated with this act, that he was glad when someone said to him, let us go to the house of the Lord. I love the transition it makes towards the end of the psalm, uh, starting in verse 6, where it says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This word peace um, is a kind of a deeper Jewish concept. It's the word we translate is from shalom, um, which is a, a Hebrew greeting. It's used a lot. And I, I think when I hear the word peace so often, what I think of is just the absence of conflict. And so... Um, you know, when I want peace in my house, I just want, you know, uh, uh, argument to stop. Or if I want uh, peace in the Middle East, you know, you just ha- hope those countries can figure it out and, and stop attacking each other. We, we think of peace as the absence of conflict. But there is this kind of deeper Hebraic meaning to it that goes back to when God created the world with this order. 
And so what it really means is not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of completeness, of wholeness. And I was just trying to think of a way to illustrate that, and I kept struggling with it. But, um, you know, in, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about uh, that there is a time for peace and there is a time for war. And so it paints these two different pictures of things you should be pursuing at different times that uh, sometimes war and conflict is going to arise. And so that is a, a time you should pursue. But then he paints peace as something you are also supposed to pursue. So not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of wholeness and completeness. And so I love that the instruction uh, David is giving that is all these different tribes gathered to worship the one true God in this central location. One of the aspects of that worship is to seek wholeness and completeness within the community. And so he is talking about Jerusalem. I think quite literally, you know, you want wholeness and completeness in this city, the city that God uh, set apart uh, as this capital and in this region for them. But then it quickly translates to um, the wholeness and completeness and peace within the community. And so as the people of God gather together to worship God, that is not the time for war. That is the time to seek shalom, to seek wholeness, and to seek completeness together. And so I love that it mentions that um, as decreed the tribes of the Lord would go up and because the people of Israel were spread out and I think it's easy for us to think about them as a one individual group but if you read the Old Testament you know that there was all these different families and there was these different tribes the 12 tribes and they didn't always get along you know, there was a lot of conflict that happened. And even so, when they settled in the promised land, you know, God put some of them over here and some of them over there. I think that was strategic. I think that helped some of the peace continue. But there are these moments when all of the family of God is supposed to get together and an aspect of that worship together for them was uh, very quickly on like, hey, as soon as we all get together, we all need to be praying that we get along. And so you can tell that if they were singing this on the way to the temple and maybe your road joined up with another tribe's road as you get closer to Jerusalem, and maybe you know that, hey, last year that tribe got a little bit out of hand or you didn't like the way they handled themselves. It's like, hey, we better start singing Psalm 122 before things start getting out of hand. Let's pray together. Let's seek shalom together for the peace of Jerusalem, that when the people of God get together as the nation of God, that there is a wholeness that is evidenced to the people around them. I love the period of Solomon as he was king. After, while he was seeking after the Lord, you know, if you know his trajectory towards the end of his reign, his, his heart strayed and it caused a lot of chaos. But there was this period of time, kind of the height of Israel as a nation where the temple had been built and God had gifted Solomon with wisdom and they were very prosperous. And it said people from all around the world wanted to come and see what God had done in Jerusalem. They wanted to come see the wisdom of Solomon. They wanted to come see the temple in Jerusalem because that wholeness, that shalom, that unity of the people of God was a testament to everybody else in the world that something significant was happening there. And so they were instructed to pray for the peace. And I think one of the good things for us to remember today is that uh, at a certain point, in the nation of Israel's history, um, is what we call the the exile. So uh, God had raised up other nations because Israel had quit living for Him. And so, if you if you know some of the story of uh, Babylon and when Persia was raised up, and so uh, a lot of people would have been reading the Psalm at a point where they were not in their homeland, 
that they were scattered throughout the world and they were uh, exiles and aliens is what's typically used. And so I think for us today, as we kind of pivot and and talk about some parallels for us, uh, the language of the New Testament most closely resembles the, the language of the exile and the alien. Because as we know, as uh, uh, Jesus accomplishes work on the cross uh, and the Spirit of God went out, that it was no longer an ethnicity that was called to the worship of the one true God, but it was anybody who has placed their faith in Jesus, that became the kingdom of God. And so uh, from that point on, the people of God have been a scattered people. We don't have a geographic homeland. We have a heavenly homeland. And so I think one of the things we can key in on is that to think about how those certain Israelites who uh, were plucked out of their home and placed in an adverse culture in an adverse time, they would have read these Psalms and had this longing in their heart to go and worship God with their brothers and sisters and to be a part of that community to faith. And so that's really where we are today. The people of God are spread all throughout the world. And I know we live in a part of the world where there are many churches and many people we uh, speak to on a daily basis, but um, that might also recognize Jesus as Lord. But we are a scattered people. And so that is uh, the language that should most resonate with us, that we are scattered out into our communities. We are scattered out into our neighborhoods. We are scattered out in different jobs that aren't necessarily a part of the household of faith. But then God gives us this incredible opportunity that um, we can read the psalm and have that joy in our own hearts to be glad that somebody has called us to go to the house of the Lord. And we can come together as a body and as a people to join in worship today, even though maybe we're scattered out in a world that is lost and doesn't know Jesus Christ. We get to continue to come together as the people of God and worship him. And so I love also just that description that uh, David includes of Jerusalem, where it says Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. It gives this um, structure and this formation to what God did in that location. And so, like I said, I want to draw some parallels for us to think about. And so if you would uh, go to Ephesians uh, chapter two, because as I read this, this is what uh, struck me and what I wanted to draw out for us. So in Ephesians chapter two, uh, Paul is talking about the church. And so for all of us who probably uh, grew up in a similar setting, we learned that the church is not a building, is it not? You know, the church is us. We are the church. We are the people. And so I love um, how Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 2. If you would look in verse 20 and 22, this is what he says. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so what we have today as the people of God, even looking back on this history, is the knowledge that if any of us has placed our faith in Christ and we have received the Spirit of God inside of us, what God is saying that the structure is now individually the people because we are now the temple of God. And so when the people of God join together, we know biblically that God promises to be in their midst. And so although back then there was this geographic, literal location, it was this foreshadowing how God was going to unite his people 
people all throughout the world. And so we too, when we come and join together, we are um, becoming that assembly that God ordained and God is here with us and we get to join on Sunday mornings and worship and praise him because of what he has done through Jesus Christ. It's this incredible opportunity we have. And so we should realize that this practice that we have uh, on a weekly basis of joining together in worship is an essential practice for the Christian life. And here's one of the reasons I think it's why, why it's so essential. We do live in a lost and broken world. Like we're going to all leave here today and we are going to go experience moments of brokenness that come both from within us and externally from people we encounter. And so I know we all have different jobs and different roles and different callings, but every single day we are going to be bombarded by the brokenness of the world through other people's sin, through just the way uh, people live, through our own darkness that's inside of our own hearts. And if we are not countering that regularly with worship and praise and gathering together with the people of God to realign our hearts, to uh, ascend up to what is best and to value what is of most value, it's going to take a toll on our lives. One of my favorite Psalms in the Bible, and we're not going to be able to get to it, but it's it's Psalm 73. And I just love because it's super relatable. It's this person uh, struggling with like, hey, when I look around at life, God, it seems like evil people succeed and I'm trying my best and I'm barely making it and I don't understand. And he's wrestling with that. He's like, hey, uh, they seem more prosperous. They have more money. They have more food. Like, why is it that they are not trying to honor you and they are getting ahead and I'm trying to honor you and I'm just barely holding on? He's having this wrestling match. And then I love this statement when, when it pivots in the Psalms and it said, it wasn't until I went to the house of the Lord that I discerned their end. So this author is writing, he's struggling with like, hey, why, is all these, why are all these negative things happening in the world? I'm barely holding on. But then he goes and worships and he sees clearly what's actually going on in the world. That being in this place of success in a worldly way is not actually good for your heart. It says, surely they are going to be swept away in the night, but the one who does the will of the Lord will remain for forever. And so he was struggling looking at the world around him. But when he went into worship, God reoriented his heart and his life and he realized, that uh, having a relationship with your heavenly father was more to be valued than any sort of prestige or any sort of success the world could offer. And so that is what we need in our own lives as well. As you go and have negative encounters at your workplace, as you uh, look around at the sexual promiscuity that's rampant in our culture, we're going to have all of these negative things bombarding us. And that's not even to factor in the fact that we have a spiritual enemy that also wants our destruction. And so if we are not countering that by joining together with our faith family and worshiping and fixing our eyes on what is true, it's going to make this life a lot more difficult. You know, at one point I was just kind of in a funk, having a bad month, and I went and talked to another pastor who's a counselor and just tried to get some insight and advice for how, how to deal with some of the things I was wrestling with. And he, um, and I know we all work differently, but he, he made it a very pragmatic numbers game for me, and it just clicked for me. And so how he did it, he just like drew a line down a piece of paper and put like negative and positive. He's like, hey, every day you're going to uh, have negative thoughts. You're going to have negative emotions. You're going to have people that are rude to you. You're going to have all these different things. And it's just kind of basic day. We're going to be bombarded with all these negative things. He's like, over here, so maybe you prayed three times at your meals. Maybe you spent 15 minutes in the morning reading a devotional. 
And what he drew out for me, he's like, you're not going to be able to eliminate the negative. That's just living in a broken world. He's like, the option you have is putting a lot more marks on the positive side of actually how I spend my time abiding with the Lord and spending uh, good things and adding positive things into my life. And I don't know, that just clicked for me. We live in a broken world. We're a scattered people. We're exiles and aliens awaiting our, our future home when our Savior returns. So we're going to have those negative moments. You know, we're, we're not called to uh, seclude ourselves out from the world. We're supposed to be faithfully present within the world. And so the option we have is to make sure in, there is a regular rhythm in our life that is going to draw our attention off of ourselves, off of our circumstances, and to put them on what is most valuable, and that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what I would say this morning as I read this psalm and think about um, what it means to um, apply it today and what might be in some of our lives contending against our worship. And once again, that is just placing uh, value on what is most valuable. Um, there's two things I, I, I see from here that I want to just address with us. Uh, I would say one is apathy and the other one is disunity. And so I love the first verse of the psalm that uh, David's reaction to being called to the house of the Lord is gladness. And I know there, are, there have been uh, seasons of my life where entering into church was a struggle, if I can just be honest. And those were seasons when I, when I worked in church. Because there are things that affect me and there's relationships that affect me and there's my own sinfulness that affects me that it's not always been easy to come to the house of the Lord. But overwhelmingly, as I have pressed into God and uh, continued on in this relationship, not just with him, but with his church, with his people, with my brothers and sisters in Christ, God has continued um, to uh, use that in an incredibly profound way that has grown me and matured me and ultimately brought to joy in my life. And so I would just ask you to uh, evaluate yourself. Like, do you value the gathering? Is this one option among many, or is there a priority in your life to assembling with the people of God? And so I know um, just as, as good, you know, Protestants and evangelicals, we, we know that the building is less important. It's just being with the people of God, and so I can have church anywhere, and that is true. But I would say in my experience as a pastor, when I've had conversations with people about like, hey, you know, I haven't seen you at church in a while. They're like, oh, yeah, I have this, I have this, I have that. Um, you know, most, most of the time I would say, although they might um, intellectually assent that you could have church anywhere, and I would agree with that, usually if you're not attending Sunday, you're just not having church. You know, you're not gathering with the people of God. You're not getting into your Bible. You're not uh, participating in worship. So your eyes are drawn up. Most of the time it's just an option in our busy schedules. And so I'd say one of the things that's going to wage war against your soul and wage war against you valuing Jesus the way he deserves to be valued and what's going to bring the most joy in your life is just apathy about the gathering. You know, we have this incredible church history that I would encourage all of you to dig into. And so, you know, uh, if you know a little bit about Old Testament to New Testament, the, the, the people of God had the Sabbath commanded to them, going back to creation, that God worked six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. And so for the Jewish people, Saturday is just set apart as a day of rest. And so what, what we get in the New Testament is that uh, we begin to commemorate as the people of Jesus Christ, not Saturday, the Sabbath rest day, but Sunday, the resurrection day that isn't the end of the week, but kicks off the week. And so you get it mentioned twice in the New Testament, but then if you get into the first century, it becomes a lot more established that Sunday they call the day of the Lord. 
And it is not a day of rest. It is a day of commemoration, and it is a day of celebration. And so I think God commands us to do both, that we aren't supposed to labor all the time. We are supposed to pause and take moments where we realize we don't have to control the world. We can leave that to God, and so we don't need to work every single day of our lives. We need times of rest. But what the church has latched onto and been a part of for centuries now is that we rest on Saturday, but then on Sunday we get together and we party because we are celebrating that our sin has been paid for and that the God we serve is not in the grave, but he is alive. And for centuries and centuries now, the people of God have gathered on Sunday, not always on the morning, that a lot of times it was in the evening and they had a full meal and took the Lord's Supper every single week. But for centuries, we have set aside a day of the week to be with brothers and sisters in Christ and to value what is most valuable, and that is Jesus Christ. And so we need to evaluate in our consumerism culture if we have gotten very complacent about why we actually get together. And I would just encourage you to evaluate your life. And if you view church, and I I don't mean uh, the people of God, but if you view the, the gathering of the saints as just one option among many, I just worry about the rest of your week as you uh, face the attacks of the enemy and the brokenness of this world, how you're going to keep your eyes on Jesus because I know I need this redirect every single week to draw my eyes off myself and onto something greater. So that's one of the ways I think we should be challenged this morning if we have apathy towards the gathering. And I know there are different situations, and I know we have um, members of our congregation that are at home that would love to be here, and that's not what I'm talking about. If you are homebound, I think God's grace is going to abound in that circumstance. But I'm saying if it's just casual to you, I think that's what we should evaluate. And then the second thing is disunity. Like I said, there's been those seasons of my life where I had a hard time coming into church, and a lot of times it had to do with relationships in the room. And, um, you know, we, we are in an interesting time and culture that um, if you got mad enough at somebody in this room, you could walk out the door and find 12 other churches you could go to. And I think there was a, a time in our, our family church history um, where that just wasn't an option. And that's why you see a lot of these New Testament letters that are written to the church in that city. There's, there's one body of believers per city, and that's kind of all you got. And so I love um, that when David wrote this psalm, the beginning of it starts with, we are coming to praise the name of the Lord. So the worship of God was central, but then it quickly translated to, we have to pray for peace among the community. And so you think about what Jesus said, what is the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The worship of God is always to be accompanied with love of the people around you. And so can, can we make a commitment? It wasn't rhetorical. Can we make a commitment? Even if we're not memory people, could, could we commit to memory verse 9? For the sake of the house of the Lord, I will seek your good. That's talking about the community of faith. That's talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we could make a commitment to not make church about us, to make it about the Lord first and foremost, and then to make it about our brothers and sisters secondly, I think it would change our lives. As we worship God, it's going to fight against this unity in the body. 
We can't understate what Jesus even said, that if you were leaving your gift at the altar and you remembered that one of your brothers had something against you, he said, just drop it and go and make peace first. The relationships in this room matter to God. God is creating a people for himself, not us as individuals. We are being bound together like a temple for the Lord. And so for the sake of the house of the Lord, I will seek your good. I hope that's a commitment we can all make together. Because I know how easy it is um, to have a disagreement or to suffer hurt. And then um, uh, far too often the choice we make, I think, is just to go find another church instead of contending together in relationship for the sake of the house of the Lord and for the glory of our God who is not um, disunited but is united. And so that's, I challenged us this morning for one, are we glad when we have the opportunity to join together? And if we're not, ask yourself why. Take that to the Lord in prayer. And then when we have those opportunities, are we apathetic? Or are there squabbles in this room that would prevent us from worshiping the one true God? Because both of those things we need to deal with in our hearts and get right before God, both for our own sake but also for the sake of the house of the Lord. Would you pray with me?